This is Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. Join host Lisa O'Brien as she examines America's most infamous true crime cases through the lens of the court, not the court of public opinion. No spin, no theories, no rumors, just facts. Here's Lisa O'Brien. In episode nine, Kyle and I are talking about State of Texas versus Melissa Elizabeth Lucio. Lucio was convicted and sentenced to death in connection with the February 17th, 2007 death of her two-year-old daughter, Mariah Alvarez. During a five-hour interrogation, Lucio admitted to investigators that she'd abused Mariah and denied that her husband or children inflicted the many bruises and injuries observed on Mariah's body. Lucio also insisted that Mariah's fatal injuries were sustained two days before her death in a fall downstairs. Recently, the Innocence Project has inserted itself into the case, claiming Mariah was never abused by Lucio and bringing in experts to bolster their claim that Mariah's fatal injuries and the extensive extensive bruising observed on her body were the result of a fall and a clotting disorder. We'll talk about the evidence against Lucio and the twisted version of events being presented by the IP, as well as the claims that led to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals granting Lucio a stay of execution and remand of four of her successive state post-conviction claims to the trial court for further development. And good evening, Kyle. Good evening, Lisa. How are you? Very well. This one is another one that seems to have been snake bit. (laughs) Every time there was just some impediment to recording. Yes, it's a bit well, it's a busy time of year, a lot of stuff going on in the spring. Yeah, yeah. So and but then it's I good had... timing is the uh, you know, it's a uh, with the news about the stay, the the media is breathless with uh Kim Kardashian cheers uh for another convicted murderer. And in reality, Kim Kardashian has absolutely nothing to do with it. It's absolutely nothing to do with pressure, public pressure. As with Rodney Reed, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals granted a stay based on claims raised in a successive state habeas corpus petition. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm looking at the Dallas Morning News right now, and the headline mentions the, the, the headline is actually the response of Kim Kardashian, who said it's the best news ever. And even the subhead talks about Kardashian advocating for her. So, again, it's more Instagram celebrities running the justice system. Mm-hmm. Or, well, more Instagram celebrities sticking their noses into the justice system with no clue about the facts of the case that they are advocating for. Exactly. Um, and another bit of news, Rodney Reed's uh, claim his civil rights claim related to denial of DNA testing in state court uh, is going to be reviewed in the U.S. Supreme Court. However, as with everything else, the media is getting it totally wrong. The U.S. Supreme Court is not going to decide whether or not he's entitled to DNA testing. 
the only issue being decided is whether when you file a state so uh, rather a federal civil rights claim does your time to file that claim begin to run when the state court initially denies testing or does your time begin to run after all state processes are, are concluded so you are denied in state trial court you appeal to the court of criminal appeals they deny or they affirm the trial court um, and reed actually waited two more years after the state the court of criminal appeals denied or affirmed the trial court before he actually filed his civil rights claim so they're going to decide whether the time begins immediately after the denial or whether the time begins after appeal interesting and that's that is all they're going to decide they, right they, they'll either say nope he waited too long he's not entitled to pursue it or uh yes the time begins when the appeals process is over and therefore he files his his request in time but it's a it's a procedural issue it's not a merits not, issue on right. yeah on dna testing so, yeah, and I think people confuse that a lot. They think because there's a procedural ruling that it automatically means it's a merit ruling. Right. So, um, and we'll look at that later on. I think after, uh, at least after the briefing in the Supreme Court case is done, we'll, we'll revisit Rodney Reed. Sounds good. So, all right. So we've got Mariah Alvarez. Um, the death of Mariah Alvarez or the murder of Mariah Alvarez. Um, this is one of the saddest cases. I mean, they're all sad. Uh, death is never a good thing. But this one, this child was two years old when her mother, who is supposed to care for her and love her, and protect her abused her to such an extent that she died alone in the middle of a floor unattended that's terrible it's heartbreaking mm -hmm. those aren't even the right words um yeah and um mariah was born september 6 2004 uh probably in harlingen texas because that's where lucio was living uh, during that time period, her father was a guy by the name of Robert Alvarez. Um, sometimes he's referred to as Roberto Alvarez. Um, and her mother was Mel Melissa Elizabeth Lucio, who's also known as Melissa Lucio, and who's also known as Melissa Salinas. Now, while I was known by my maiden name, I kept my married name after I divorced, but I haven't used my maiden name since I changed it when I got married. So, and Salinas that, is her maiden is her maiden no, name. No, Salinas oh. is not her maiden name. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure what her maiden name is, uh, which we'll we'll get into a little bit later. Um, Mariah had 11 siblings, 
Melissa, Daniela, Alexandra, John, Robert, Richard, Renee, Selena, Gilbert, Sarah, and Adriana. I think I covered them all. Um, Lucy also gave birth to twins in October of 2007, but I didn't count them as uh, siblings. Mariah's cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head and child abuse. And she is buried in the Harlingen Combs Memorial Cemetery in an unmarked grave. In 15 years, her Lucio, Melissa Lucio's family, mother, sisters, brothers, her siblings, her father, his family, nobody has seen fit to buy this child a headstone. Yeah, as we were talking earlier, I think that's that screams loudly about this case, just the fact that they care so little to even buy her a headstone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They don't want to remember. And the, the really very, tr- the most tragic part of this case is that in September of 2004, Mariah and her Alvarez siblings, as well as two of her sisters, uh, Lucio's sisters, they were all removed from Melissa Lucio's care because of neglect, severe neglect. And um, so Mariah, for the first two years of her life, was with a foster family with whom she bonded and with whom she appears to have thrived. But she was returned November of 2006. Um, I know that's a hard job. I know that, you know, we have a, I know that, you know, the general sense is in the courts to have children with their biological parents, but this just seems like such a tragic Mm -hmm. mistake by CPS. And well, one of the other problems is that Melissa Lucio had, Melissa Lucio probably could have dealt with two or three kids. She couldn't deal with 12 or 10 because I think at the time Mariah was killed Melissa and Daniela were living outside the house but all the other kids were living in the household and they would live in two bedroom apartments that were too small right Uh, and part of that is because of poverty but their poverty was a result of drug use so I don't have a lot of sympathy You know, I can understand if they both worked and were always working and never had any money and, you know, couldn't pay rent and and didn't get any kind of assistance, but they were doing drugs on public assistance and that many kids, you get a lot of money from the state of Texas. Yeah, absolutely. And they were using it not to take care of those children, but to buy drugs. So um to you know the 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 perpetrator and the person who's been getting all the attention which is disgusting is melissa elizabeth lucio also known as melissa lucio melissa salinas um she has two birth dates apparently perhaps one of them belongs to melissa salinas 
Um, some sources have July 18th, 1968. Others have June 18th, 1969. And she was apparently born in Lubbock, Texas. Her mother was Esperanza Correa. And I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, and her father was Santo Gonzalez, who apparently he was involved in an affair with Esperanza. And he abandoned her prior to Melissa's birth. I'm not sure what order Melissa is in. Um, and then Esperanza had multiple uh, live-in boyfriends. Samuel Valencia, Esquiel, Kilo Carr were two live-in boyfriends. Uh, and then she married Algario Trevino Sr. at some point. Melissa's siblings are Sonia, Diane, I believe Renee and Richard are two brothers. And then there are two unknown siblings. Uh, Melissa dropped out in the 11th grade. At age 16, she married Guadalupe Lucio, who was 20. Um, now, this has led to the Innocence Project saying, oh, she was forced to be a child bride. But she chose to try to escape whatever was going on in, in Esperanza's home by marrying somebody. Yeah, you see that, too. That happens way too much. And you, know, you that, hear that was frequently. 16. And, and her mother consented because she got her mother to consent. Now, maybe her mother should have put her foot down and said no. But she would have run away and run off and married him. I mean, you know, Harlingen. Right. Or, well, were they in? I wonder if they were in Harlingen or Lubbock. It's not clear where they were, where they were. Yeah. And from the from those folks that aren't from Texas, Lubbock and Harlingen are not close. <laughs> no, Harlingen is down. Um, uh People are probably more familiar with Brownsville. Right, but they're right there together. Yeah, and border then town. right across, it's a border town. Right across, uh, is it the river? Is there a river? Well, the the river is on the south side, but Brown, it's Brownsville, Harlingen. They're all right there together. And right across from Matamoros, which exactly people would remember from uh, the Santeria uh, murders yes. back in exactly. the eighties. So, uh, but yeah, she made the choice to get married. She wasn't a, she wasn't forced to be a child bride. She made the choice. She was 16 and she was being stupid. Instead of staying in school and getting out that way, she was being stupid. Um, she also claims that her sister-in-law was manipulative and introduced her to cocaine at that time. Um, and stupid decided to become a drug addict. She had multiple kids born addicted to cocaine. She had kids taken away. You know, she made a lot of bad choices. And never once woke up and said, hmm, this is not working. I need to do something else. Um, Guadalupe, her relationship with Guadalupe ended at some point, although she had probably five children by that time. And um, then she left 
Guadalupe uh, and ended up in a common law relationship with Robert Alvarez. And he's the one who sired her, her remaining seven children. Um, and does that include the twins that were born in jail? Yes, more likely than not, that would include the twins. Now, Melissa Lucio has given conflicting claims about having been a sexual abuse victim. Uh, she has claimed to be a domestic violence victim, both with Guadalupe Lucio as well as Robert Alvarez. Although I think her claims about Robert Alvarez have been conflicting. Um, where, yeah, she's made claims, but people have said they never saw Alvarez actually, you know, abuse her in any way. Um, she's addicted to drugs, used drugs, abused drugs. She suffered from depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, she was, her family was the subject of multiple CPS investigations for neglect and neglectful supervision between December 21st, 1995 and February 17, 2007. And that was investigations in 1995, 1996, 1998, 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, yeah. One, two, three, four. Yeah, the seventh time to finally be taken away. Yeah. Um, and it's, like I said, it's, it's really sad that there was that much involvement with CPS. Uh, something the Innocence Project has claimed, which I don't put any stock in whatsoever. Uh, Innocence Project claims because the CPS records in the CPS records, the children don't claim Lucio abused them. She didn't. Therefore, she didn't abuse Mariah. And I don't find any any credence or any credibility to that because. Kids very rarely point the finger at mom or dad when they are being abused and when CPS is investigating. And usually right. they are well-trained enough that they give whatever lies mom and dad have told them to tell. That CPS doesn't believe that and, you know, removes them or, or whatever occurs. But generally kids don't point the finger at mom or dad. Right. Well, and it seems like, too, you know, the system, you know, being in foster care has a really negative reputation, some of it probably fair, some by unfair, but I, I'm sure a lot of kids feel like, well, this may suck, but at least it sucks with my family better than going and sucking with a bunch of strangers. No. And actually, I think a lot of, a lot of abused kids, they still, you know, first of all, they're, they're conditioned to think it's their fault. Of course. And yeah, so absolutely. they think, you know, that when they're taken away, that's even worse. Um, I, I knew a family that had issues and when the child was taken away, the child lied about the foster parents to get them in trouble, thinking that would get her back home. That would get her back home. Right. 
and it just got her to another foster family. And sometimes foster families are not, are not good. Um, there are a lot of foster par parents who abuse their charges and who abuse the system. But um, that is, you know, again, there is a documented case of abuse, though, by Lucio against her son, Gabriel who also tested positive for cocaine at the time of his birth in around November of 2000. Mariah tested positive for cocaine. In fact, in September of 2004, when she went to her foster family, she went through withdrawal with the foster family. So, um, The, the argument that Lucio never abused Mariah is made out of whole cloth. It's very carefully crafted to, you know, sound good, but it isn't true. Because I would think if you're pregnant and you're doing cocaine and then your child is born addicted to it, you have abused your child. Absolutely. You may not have physically laid hands on the kid, but you have abused the child by ingesting a drug that passes through to the baby and then the baby is born addicted, which can cause a myriad of health and other problems for an infant. Um, and then also in September of 2006, uh, Lucio was arrested for a misdemeanor DWI but she used the alias Melissa Salinas. So she probably, she, I mean, she apparently had a driver's license and everything under the name S Melissa mm. Salinas. And, you know, an interesting thing in state versus Melissa Lucio, not once did they mention Melissa Salinas. Not once did they mention that DWI. And if you read some of the articles on the internet, it's like, the DWI and the jail records that were used as at the punishment phase of her trial, like they were all made up. Everybody's out to get Melissa Lucio. Everybody hates her. You know, nobody loves her. Everybody hates her. Guess she should eat some worms. Um, because it, it's like a big conspiracy, you know? Well, well, we've seen that a lot of these innocence project cases, right? It's the, the folks that believe they're innocent. It's always there's a massive coordinated conspiracy against some mm -hmm. poor person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, and none, I think that's the thing with Melissa Lucio we, that people don't understand. This is a woman who is never going to take responsibility for anything. If you see her smack somebody in the face, she will deny to her dying breath that she did it. She'll say they fell into her hand. They'll, she'll say that they ran into her hand. They'll say she wasn't, she'll say she wasn't even there. It couldn't have happened. Right. You know, she'll never take accountability. She never has. She never will. And if she can find excuses, she will make them up. Uh, and of course, again, as we know, her victim was her two-year-old daughter, Mariah Alvarez.
So um, the crime uh, occurred in Harlingen, Texas, Cameron County. Um, Mariah was born to Lucio and Robert Alvarez on September 6, 2004. She was the seventh child to Lucio and Alvarez and the 12th child for Lucio. Uh, Lucio was 35 at the time Mariah was born. Her first marriage at age 16 to Guadalupe, Lucio produced five children before they were divorced. Um, while Lucio claims to have had a long history of sexual abuse and domestic violence uh, throughout her life, including during her marriage to Lucio, she's also denied it. So it's kind of, I kind of wonder how much of it is used to get sympathy. Right. Um, maybe, you know, maybe it's not well documented. That's for, for sure. I don't like saying it's definitely not true. I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm with you. Like I would never want to question somebody's claim, you know, of that, but I also don't think it's unfair to say that we've definitely seen instances of people who get in trouble or who are looking for attention or sympathy claiming to have suffered you know right. particular crimes a lot of times abuse because that's and, sort of they feel like it gives them a well okay everything else you know you get a pass on yeah and i think I, you know i read multiple pleadings put forth put together by lucio's uh advocates and it, it the accounts have changed the the people who abused her or sexually abused her it's changed and it's, you know, it started earlier, it started later. And in, in the state versus Melissa Lucio, the only person she mentioned was her mother's boyfriend, uh, car, I believe. And yet in later things that it's, you know, two or three different people, some relatives, some uncles, you know, some boyfriends, some cousins, some strangers um so i don't know whether she's exaggerating or or whether it you know it all really happened and i don't want to say it didn't lucio was um raised by a single mother at least for a time uh she had two sisters sonia and diane she has four other siblings, including two brothers, Richard and Renee, and two other siblings that I don't know their names. Um, she claims a living boyfriend of her mother's began sexually abusing her at age seven, and some things it's age six. Uh, in September of 2004, Mariah and her Alvarez siblings and the minor Lucio siblings were removed from the household due to evidence of severe neglect. CPS workers observed ants crawling on Mariah's mattress, and they found little food in the house, which was dirty and smelled of urine. The children were also dirty and had strong body odor. Each child exhibited minor injuries consistent with abuse. 
Robert had staples on his head, allegedly due to a fall off a bed, and Gabriel had bite marks. Um, we talked about Lucio's history with CPS. Um, and another, pro another thing that I, I found, the kids were all aggressive and violent with each other, with other people. Um, this was a problem with like all of the kids and they're learning that not just from their father or not just from the man in the house. They've got to be learning that because the girls are doing it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's got to be learned behavior and just, I, it's, there's probably some sort of Lord of the Lord of the flies, just survival tactics you know given the yeah. lack of food lack of care a lot of it is likely learned but some of it may just be and, trying to survive and cocaine is such a stimulant that when you're high on cocaine yes. you can you can turn on the drop of a hat absolutely i mean you can be fine and then all of a sudden you're not and you're yelling and screaming and and ready to you know beat the crap out of whoever gets in your way um and and that is what they grew up with you know that's what they saw in their house um lucio and the family have claimed that on february 15 2007 mariah fell down a steep staircase at their old apartment in harlingen the statements however given by lucio and her children regarding the event are confusing and contradictory some kids say they saw it in one statement and then in another statement they say lucio told them about it um they don't give consistent statements about who was present when it happened some of them say mariah fell down two or three stairs some even said the fall happened at their new apartment which only had two or three stairs right at the front of the at the front door so whether a fall a significant fall happened is questionable um another problem is that if the fall was as bad as lucio claims it was and the injuries mariah suffered were that bad mariah was not taken to a doctor or a hospital to be seen by a doctor and this is in spite of the fact that she was lethargic vomiting refusing to eat her jaw was locking up which could be seizure and she was having trouble breathing lucio admitted to police that she feared taking mariah to a doctor because of the numerous bruises in various stages of healing all over mariah's body and this child was bruised head to toe and it wasn't just arms and legs like a you know clumsy kid because they've tried to say oh mariah fell a lot this was her genitals had bruises because lucio admitted to pinching them she had bruises on her chest she had internal bruising on her kidneys spine and lungs So 
this was not a clumsy kid bruises on a clumsy kid being mistaken for child abuse exactly um like i said one of the one of the detectives in lucio's interview said the child was bruised head to toe and i believe him and another part of their interview they're going like they're taking pictures well how did she get this bruise did you hit her on the chest and lucio would deny it um so at around seven o'clock p.m on february 17 2007 Paramedics were summoned to Lucio's new apartment for Mariah, who was lying in, alone in the middle of the floor, unresponsive, not breathing, and with no heartbeat. One EMT observed that Lucio showed little interest in Mariah and was not holding her when they arrived. The lack of concern made an impression on the EMTs. Um, I think another flaw in CPS's return of the children is that they took Mariah away at the age of three weeks. She did not bond with with Lucio and Lucio did not bond with her, although I doubt Lucio would have bonded. With her anyway, I don't think Lucio bonded to any of her children. They were just a means to an end to her. Right. Um, and you'll probably get to this, but what was the what was the time of death that they believe well, she was pronounced at the hospital. Well, so the, the time of death is going to be the right. Time so it'll be after they picked her up, but she was Correct. unresponsive when they got she, there. So she was unresponsive, not breathing with no heartbeat. I think they were able to resuscitate her. They were able to resuscitate her and they brought her to the hospital, but she was declared. And I think she was finally declared dead at like eight or nine o'clock. Got it. So there may have they may have thought they could resuscitate her and they she was beyond help. Um, but it was eight or nine o'clock. And that's another thing that puts this in context. The reason Lucio and Alvarez were questioned so late at night was because all this took place late at night. They didn't take them to the police station until 10 o'clock. So they left him at the hospital with the kids dealing with the death of Mariah. Um, you know, the, the claims that she was, she was questioned late at night, not allowed to sleep, not given any food. That's all bullshit. That's something made up by one of her appellate attorneys that was shot down very quickly in post-conviction claim, in her post-conviction claims. Um, the ER physician who, one of the ER physicians who treated Mariah stated that her injuries were the absolute worst case of abuse he'd seen in his 30 years of practice. And again, there was a time lapse because after Mariah died, there was apparently an effort made to document the extensive bruising on her body prior to questioning Lucio and Alvarez. And they weren't just questioning Lucio. They weren't focusing on Lucio. They were, they were questioning Alvarez as well. Um, so the questioning began about 10 p.m. 
Uh, also, during their investigation of Mariah's death, they found paraphernalia used to smoke crack cocaine in the apartment. Lucio denied using drugs again, and I think her drug tests were clear, but Alvarez had started again. And Lucio was probably not far behind. Um, during initial questioning, Lucio insisted that Mariah's death was, was the result of her fall on 2-15-2007. The array of bruises on Mariah's body and several injuries, including a bite mark on her back and shoulder, were indicative of long-term child abuse. It was also discovered that Mariah had sustained a broken arm at least two weeks before her death, which had remained untreated. The estimate of the break was two to seven weeks. But even two weeks with a broken, broken bone without medical treatment is torture. So, yeah, it's terrible. I mean, you know, two weeks, she had a broken arm. At least two weeks. Initially, Lucio claimed that most of Mariah's injuries were the result of rough play by her siblings, mosquito bites, and temper tantrums. After five hours, Lucio admitted to causing most of Mariah's injuries and admitted to abusing the child. However, she always denied striking Mariah in the head. In a phone call to her sister, Lucio said, don't blame Robert. This was me. I did it. So don't blame Robert, which her sister then denied that that's what they were talking about. Her family has also enabled her to a degree. Um, when she spent her assistance money on drugs and couldn't pay her rent, her family would give her money to pay her rent. So, you know, um, and they're continuing to enable her now. In her statement to police, Lucio admitted that she would hit Mariah when she got mad. She admitted to taking her frustration out with the other children uh, jumping around by biting Mariah on the back while she brushed Mariah's hair. Uh, and I think that was another, another factor is that if Mariah was there, as you said, when you and I initially discussed looking at this case, as Selena has said on her TikTok videos, Mariah became Lucio's whipping boy. Right. And that's pretty common, right? I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but it's not uncommon for an abusive parent to pick one, you know, if he or she has multiple children to pick one to sort of be the brunt of the abuse. Mm -hmm. I think, I think I've heard it called like the Cinderella syndrome or something, you know, where they yeah. pick one child to sort of take everything out on. Yeah. So, you know, just because you know, another child, one of the other 11 children weren't abused doesn't mean that Mariah was not. Mm -hmm. Correct. And, you know, I think another thing too, is that sometimes it is, it is gender-based. All the girls will be mistreated, but the boys will not. And the boys will be allowed to mistreat the girls. Well, and I think you really said it well, which I thought was insightful. Mariah was taken away when she was an infant. And so Lucio never really may have bonded mm -hmm. with her and may have, you know, never, even though, you know, she was her physical daughter may have felt yeah. differently about her. And, you know, and, and I acknowledge they don't call it terrible twos for nothing. Mariah was two years old when she was returned and she probably was not happy to be in this new situation. She didn't understand 
Right. And so she probably was going to act out to a degree that probably would have set Lucio off. But again, what Selena has said is that Mariah became very withdrawn and very quiet around her mother. So it's like she may have initially been thrown a tantrum or been resistant to Melissa Lucio, but she learned that she needed to be quiet and just not be seen. So um, during questioning, Lucio did not try to blame Mariah's abuse on any of her other children. Now she said rough play, but she never claimed that the other children abused Mariah, nor did she claim that Alexandra, one of her older daughters by Guadalupe Lucio abused Mariah. In interviews during the investigation, none of the children claimed to have seen Alexandra cause Mariah's fall or abuse Mariah. Lucio stated that only she spanked Mariah or hit Mariah, and she stated several times that neither Alvarez nor any of the other children hit Mariah. Um, this is, comes into play later. We'll keep score. <laughs> During questioning with police alvarez stated that mariah had head pain and he observed bruises on her chest he says that lucio told him the bruises came from play with mariah's siblings the children told him lucio hit mariah he observed bruises on mariah's cheeks and said that mariah was afraid of her mother on february 19 2007 dr norma farley conducted mariah's autopsy she attributed Mariah's death to blunt force head trauma and opined that the injury would have caused immediate distress, making it unlikely that it could have been sustained more than 24 hours before Mariah's death. In addition to the array of external bruising on Mariah's body, Dr. Farley documented internal bruising on Mariah's spine, kidneys, and lung. Uh, Mariah was also noted to be severely dehydrated and malnourished at the time of her death and the picture that i posted is probably her second birthday with her foster family on september 6 2006 and that is the last picture taken of that child and there probably aren't a lot of other pictures. When you do a search for Mariah Alvarez, that's the only picture you find of Mariah and the rest are all Lucio. So um, now this, like I said, this case uh, was investigated by Harlingen PD and they brought in Texas Rangers, um, probably because they uh, lacked some resources if the case expanded outside of Harlingen and Cameron County. Right. Um, something interesting, a lot of, there's a lot of stuff, people claiming racism, racism, because Lucio's Hispanic. Um, but I, I made a list of the names of the police detectives. We have Ranger Miguel Ramirez, Ranger Castaneda, Ranger Escalon, Detective Cruz, Officer Villarreal, or Via Real, Detective Jesus Banda, Detective Salinas, no relation to Melissa, Detective Martinez, and Investigator Joe Lopez. So that's a lot of Hispanic names. 
Right. Well, and, and as the prosecutor too, I believe, right. I think there's, you know, right. And, you know, I can tell you, you know, I have several friends that live in the Valley and while it, they will tell you it has its own interesting culture that is uh, neither <laughs> Texan or Mexican. It's kind of its own different place. Right. Um, you know, there is, it is definitely a, um, you know, strongly uh, Hispanic, uh, you know, culture. It's, yeah. it's right there on the border. So yeah, yeah it's, claims of racism are just kind of silly. It's just like, oh yeah, we've got to throw the racism card against the door because, well, you know, that's what we always Let's do. Let's see if it sticks. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like the, the doctors, there was one of the emergency room doctors was Dr. Vargas. The other was Dr. Davis. And he came in years later uh, claiming Vargas didn't know what he was talking about, but um, that's typical of IP witnesses. Uh, the judge was Arturo Cisneros Nelson. And I've met some Hispanic people with Irish names and very Anglo sounding names. So, but I mean, with a name like Arturo, he's at least half Spanish or half <laughs> Hispanic. Uh, the experts were Pinkerman and Villanueva. Um, now, something. Um, I guess we'll we'll knock it out the park right now. Um, her prosecutors were Alfredo Padilla and Maria DeFord. While the prosecutor in Cameron County, the, the overall DA, was involved in some scandal between 2005 and 2007, that was not involved in Lucio's case. And Lucio's never presented any evidence that he did anything or did any had any influence on her case. Um, he was the DA in name, but he does it doesn't look like he put hands on Lucio's case. And he was basically taking money to uh, basically for discretionary decisions like charging. If you paid him, he would charge you with a misdemeanor instead of a felony. Um, which is wrong. I'm not saying it's not wrong, but that wasn't involved in her case. And he actually right. let a murderer, he was trying to jockey to get a $500,000 bond to two of his partners for the family members of a murdered woman from the killer. And so he got the judge and the attorneys involved. He took a kickback. They did get the $500,000, which earned them $200,000 in attorney's fees. The 300,000 went to the victim's family. So you know they were pursuing a civil claim. But the problem is, is that he and the judge agreed to let the killer, after he pled guilty, leave the courthouse to get his affairs in order. And he was an Indian national. And so he went back to India. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So it wasn't like he was overcharging people. He was actually undercharging people. He could have been undercharging. So, and, and again, I, I mean, Lucio has never said, uh, Via Lobos came to me and said, if I paid him $100,000, he would charge me with injury to a child. And I couldn't, so he charged me with capital murder. 
And she's not saying that. You know, so what what he was doing while it was wrong, I don't think it had any bearing on this case or the prosecution of Melissa Lucio. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's possible for a prosecutor to be a scumbag and doing things wrong, stealing money, but doesn't necessarily mean he's, you know, corrupt on a particular case. Right. And again, it doesn't appear that he actually laid any hand on this case. Now, something to clear up. Melissa Lucio was charged with capital murder because Mariah was a child under age six. And Lucio caused her death. Alvarez was also charged with injury to a child by omission. Um, in on the same date of her indictment, and I don't know how this worked, she entered a guilty plea to misdemeanor DWI, waived jury, waived counsel, and waived appeal. And um, apparently Alvarez must have been let let go because he was in the wind for a while and then arrested in August of 2008. Don't know how that happened. Um, there are gaps in the in the chronology <laughs> for his case. Um, so the case was uh, the 138th Judicial District, Cameron County, Texas. Lucio was represented by Peter C. Gilman and Adolfo Cordova. They did have some hearings. They had um, a hearings multiple hearings, I think, regarding obtaining CPS records. And they also had a hearing regarding the admissibility of Lucio's statement to police. So from the beginning, Gilman was trying to keep that statement out. And there was a motion to determine the voluntariness of the statement, which unfortunately, a, a lot of people don't understand. When you try to claim a a statement isn't voluntary, you have to have some actions on the part of the police officers that would render it involuntary. They physically strike you. Right. Uh, they, you know, leave you in a room for six hours, deny letting you use the bathroom, deny food, deny water, um, saying, I want to talk to an attorney and having them ignore that and just keep questioning you. You have to have something like that. You can't just say, I was in a police station. That's inherently coercive. Therefore, my statement wasn't voluntary. That just, that's not how it works. There has to be some, something done by police to make, to overbear your, you know, free will. You know, and, and I mean, I get it happens and I realize like the innocence project in Spanish means this confession was coerced, but I really have a hard time believing a mother would falsely confess to killing her children. Not going to say it doesn't happen, but that just, and, that's a tough pill for me to swallow. And that's another thing that the Innocence Project ignores. She didn't confess to killing Mariah. She confessed to abusing Mariah, but she always denied causing actually killing the her. injuries that caused her death. 
she always claimed those injuries were sustained in the fall. Um, she, she never said I killed her. She admitted to abusing her and, and it's kind of a, it's a reasonable inference that if you abused her to cause that many injuries, including kidney, lung, spine, um, then it's not a far trip to think you could have caused injury, blunt trauma to the head. And that could be shaken baby. You didn't have to hit her or, or knock her head against something. You could have shaken her and not even realized that you caused an injury. Um, so the state was represented by, uh, like I said, Alfredo, Alfredo Pedia and Maria DeFord. And throughout the paperwork, those are the only names that appear on behalf of the people of Cameron County or the state of Texas. Um, the guilt innocence phase of Lucio's trial was June 30th, 2008 through July 8th, 2008. Her defenses were that Mariah's cause of death was from the fall that Lucio did not cause any of the fatal injuries, that Lucio's statement to police was not true. And they made an un unsuccessful effort to have their expert psychologist and social worker testify regarding false confession or regarding Lucio's propensity to admit to a crime she didn't commit because she was a battered woman. Um, on July 8, 2008, they found uh, Melissa Lucio guilty. And once again, her jury four person was Melissa Quintanilla. The penalty phase was July 9th, 2008 through July 10th, 2008. Uh, there was the DWI guilty plea, which was entered in May of 2007. And then jail records while in jail, uh, waiting trial. Lucio got into fights, was written up for dis disrespecting correction officers, was written up for possession of contraband and unauthorized communication. I among other things, there are a few other things that um, were in there, but I didn't write them down. Um, so she wasn't, she's not exactly a, a rule follower. Right. Yeah. As she's evidence, not a, yeah. By a, a second identity with a second birth date. Well, and it's kind of it's kind of interesting too. And again, I no comment on whether or not she was abused, but I mean, even in prison, she doesn't exhibit the meek, abused person personality. She's already getting into fights. She's causing problems with the guards. You know, she seems to be just, you know, right. a person who trouble follows her. Right. And um of course, on July 10th, 2008, the jury uh, rendered its verdict. They answered yes to the future dangerousness question, and they found uh, no to whether the mitigating evidence outweighed the aggravators, and they sentenced Lucio to death. Um, after the verdict, the attorney prior to formal sentencing move that Lucio be sentenced to life without parole 
in light of Barry versus state, which is essentially asking the judge to disregard the, the jury sentence and, and sentence uh, Lucio to a lesser penalty, um, which a judge in a criminal case cannot do. And I think the U.S. Supreme Court would frown on a judge that did. Um, but Barry involved a woman who killed a newborn and then years later abandoned a second one, who I think was just severely injured. She, she survived. Uh, and there was a lot of um, it was, they, they were isolated incidents. She had other kids that she was loving and cared for very well. She apparently was getting, was having children with this person and she didn't like those children and didn't want those children because her children by this other person were fine. Um, it's, it's really strange, but the, the jury had sentenced her to death and the court of criminal appeals found that her, her she wasn't a danger the future dangerous wasn't supported by the evidence for her jury uh because those incidents with the children were with the babies were newborns were isolated um on july 22nd 2008 lucio was sentenced to death with a credit for 521 days and that's done so that if the sentence is vacated and, and she's sentenced to life without parole. That's done so that there's a credit for whatever day she served pending trial. Um, in Alvarez's case, he was found guilty on September 21st, 2009 of injury to a child. And he was sentenced to serve four years. Now, something I think they mentioned in State versus Lucio, uh, he only served four years and how unfair that was. But he did not lay hands on Mariah. He was guilty of injury to a child by omission. So he knew she was hurt and he didn't get help. That was his crime. That's why he was only sentenced to four years. Well, and it's a good to remind everybody earlier on the phone call, she's recorded saying, you know, don't blame Robert. Yeah, don't blame him. Fault. He didn't do anything. Yeah. Right. And she denied that he did anything to um, to the police. So, you know, of course, he's not going to be charged with capital murder either. But they're arguing like he's a man. So he gets a lesser uh, charge than I do because I'm a woman. But no you got the charge you got because you inflicted the injuries. Well, and, and that's one of those things. That's one of the talking points now about how, you know, unfair their criminal justice system is, you know, based on physical characteristics. And, you know, if there's anything that's really non-controversial is that on average, women receive exponentially lower sentences for commensurate crimes than men do, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It's really a pretty weak sauce. Yeah. So um, direct appeal, uh, her attorney was Larry Warner. He was from Harlingen. He was appointed by the court on December 10th, 2008. 
Her conviction and sentence were both affirmed on September 14, 2011, which happens to be my birthday. Um, basically, the court, Lucia raised 14 points of error. Um, and most of them involved uh, the future dangerousness. She wanted to go back and, and have a hearing to have the court determine whether or not the, her proof had failed. She was challenging the DU, DWI uh, guilty verdict and the process that it that was obtained in. She wanted them to find the evidence was legally insufficient uh, under Barry. Uh, instead of going through each one, I'm just going to try and um, uh, just try and summarize. They were uh, she argued that the evidence was legally and factually insufficient to support her conviction and her sentence. And um, she also complained about the, excuse me, the trial court refusing to allow Villanueva and Pinkerman to testify about Lucio's confession. And essentially what they wanted to do was they wanted to put Villanueva on and Pinkerman on to say the confession wasn't true or the confession wasn't voluntary because um, she was a battered woman. And the whether the confession is voluntary or not, initially that's made by a judge, but it's also a, an issue a jury decides. Right. And it's also up to the jury to decide if the confession is true or not. Well, and, and the thing is, too, is, you know, she may have been a battered woman, but being a battered woman doesn't make you confess to killing your children. Mm -hmm. Correct. And it, it's also she may, you know, she may have been a battered woman. And they were saying because she was a battered woman, her way of interacting with the uh, police investigators interviewing her was. Um, consistent with battered woman and where she's just going to agree with whatever they tell her or she's well, going to take the blame for everything. Well, I think it's a good, it's a good thing. maybe to tease out for a second. So I've, you know, in reading some of the, the folks that believe she's innocent that they say, Oh, well, the kids never said that she was abused. Did she ever file charges or make a complaint or restraining order against anybody that battered her? No. So, yeah, you can't, I mean, it can't be both ways, right? You can't believe, well, she was scared, so she would never have turned in her partner who may have abused her. Okay, that's fine. If you argue that, fair enough. But then you can't turn around and say, oh, well, the kids didn't say that she abused them, so she clearly didn't. You know, it has mm -hmm. to work both ways. If, yeah. if the victim is scared to report it fair that's absolutely fair but then it has to be both victims both the kids and her yeah you can't yeah. switch your your point of view you right. know depending on who it is and and i take issue with them claiming that the the cps records don't show abuse because there is an instance of abuse documented with gabriel absolutely well and mariah too right she was taken yeah. away from her so well, the the 2004, the kids were taken away because of the condition in the house. Right. Fair and enough. And the absence of food and the filth in the house and the, the fact that the kids were not 
uh, we're not being cared for. Well, and that stuff is not always related, but a lot of times those things are related. So, and then another interesting, uh, another kind of interesting facet is that after the twins were born, CPS was trying to decide whether or not to terminate Lucio's rights with all of her kids and whether or not to allow those children to visit her in jail. So they had a therapist come in and offer therapy to Lucio while in jail. And one of the things that became an issue was that the prosecution was able to get the therapy notes. Of course, the defense also got those notes. And there were some inconsistencies in the notes that were eventually used to impeach Lucio's experts. Because this is another problem with the mitigation experts is sometimes they look at the um, they tend to how can I put this? Uh, they tend to look at the records with rose-colored glasses. They look for what supports whatever their position is. Nonviolent, candidate for sainthood, whatever. And they they ignore and close their eyes to anything that's not. Right. And one of the things in the records was that Lucio denied to the therapist that she had ever been sexually abused. So when the mitigation person is on the stand in the punishment phase talking about all this sexual abuse then well she said she wasn't sexually abused in these records does that change your opinion and that doesn't look good and the the therapist had those records and had those notes so um you know she should have seen that little problem to say uh this you told this guy you weren't abused why would you tell him that if you were abused right um so they overruled most or they over actually overruled all of her um all of her complaints and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna detail them um but most of the things i can say most of the things that they're raising now were raised in her direct appeal. So they're not new because they've presented it to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals that did not find it had merit. So, um, and there were two concurrences with the uh, Texas Court of Criminal Appeals by Judge Keller and Judge Cochran. Uh, she did file a writ with the United States Supreme Court, which was denied on June 4th, 2012. So her conviction and sentence became fi final on June 4th, 2012. Um, she did pursue a post state post-conviction claim with the DWI on the grounds that her uh, waiver of the jury 
counsel and appeal were not voluntary or knowing. However, there was a hearing and Lucio appeared and testified at that hearing. And in her testimony, she admitted that she pled guilty to DWI because she was guilty of DWI. Wah, wah, wah. That pretty much tanks her whole case. Why, just for the audience out there, why would she, this seems, you know, this seems odd to me that she's even thinking about her well, TWI at this point. What's, can you provide a little color as to why she well, may have done this? I think what happened was, first of all, she was arrested under an assumed name. And the Melissa Salinas, right? The Melissa Salinas. And so I think that after the capital murder charge, this DWI began to heat up and there was fingerprint evidence and, you know, evidence to that would look really bad for her if it came into the capital murder case. Got it. Because it just kind of shows that she's lying, has a history of lying all the way to having a complete fake identity. Right. And um, that and that plus that she was arrested under this fake identity and it proves to be her. Um, so I think initially the strategy was just plead guilty. It's a misdemeanor. Get it out of the way. We'll try and find some way to keep it out of the trial. And then when she gets another attorney, he's like, well, let's see if we can get rid of it by claiming your waiver was not voluntary and knowing and if we get rid of it, we get rid of half the future dangerousness finding. And so we can get the death sentence reversed. And I think this is the thought process. But then Lucio, who, bless her heart, isn't smart, gets up there and says, well, no, I pled guilty to DWI because I was guilty of DWI. And I think that's the only time in her life, she's admitted when she's done something wrong. But it bit her in the ass. So, um, so they and the, the court affirmed, and this was done, the county court at law, and then it was appealed to the 13th District Court of Appeal. It, they didn't even try to take it to the Court of Criminal Appeals. And you can, again, another thing for people that are out there listening that are shocked. Um, you don't have to have an attorney. You can waive an attorney. You can waive a jury. You can waive appeal. As long as you do it knowing and voluntary. You know, just like when you get a, a ticket, a traffic ticket, a moving violation or a speeding ticket, when you go, you plead no contest. You're doing it without an attorney telling you. And you're waiving appeal. And, you know, you're hoping that the judge doesn't give you a fine you can't pay. And, you know, that's not uncommon. And one of the arguments they tried to make was that her Sixth Amendment right to an attorney in the capital murder extended to the DWI, which isn't true. They're separate. And the same for the therapist, because he wasn't working for police. Her Sixth Amendment right did not attach to the therapy. 
So um, she has filed multiple writs. Uh, there was apparently a writ in filed in 2009 while she was excuse me pursuing her uh, direct appeal. Uh, it was denied in October of 2009. She filed a second writ, which I think is the state post-conviction writ that was went through the process. Um, it was decided on July 23rd, 2012 by the trial court. And again, I'm not going to go into each and every one of the um, allegations. She made a lot of allegations for uh, ineffective assistance of counsel. Um, and again, most of the claims that she raised in her first post-conviction claim are ones that are being repackaged by the Innocence Project now. Um, and I think we can revisit this case when the remanded case has worked its way through the system and we'll talk about these issues in detail then that makes sense because um i think it i, I think it'd be better spent to compare what she claims now with what she claimed then they found you know most of the issues didn't didn't have any merit um the contractor she didn't have a sixth amendment right he didn't have to mirandize her he wasn't working for police and um uh you know his his notes were not improperly admitted um the experts that were hired by her attorney were um you know, not deficient, and the attorney was not deficient for hiring them. Um, of course, now Innocence Project brings in experts who are going to say Dr. Farley was lying. Uh, and that's the thing that that angers me so much is that they come in and they impugn the character of the original experts for either the state or the convicted person. Um, and they say they were lying when they it's a difference of opinion and a difference of opinion is not a lie right you know i don't agree with dr Baden, but i'm not saying he's lying you know i think he's he's looking at a very limited uh sphere of inf information to come to his conclusion because that's a conclusion he needs to come to i think if he were the medical examiner in the case with Stacy just having been murdered, he would have come to different conclusions. So. And. Yeah, if, if you have a site, you know, one again, back to things I've seen, you know, that's in some of the popular mm -hmm. press, what's the, maybe talk a minute about the claims of a Brady violation. Cause I think that's the big scary one. That's easy to distract. Right. Folks that believe that she was innocent. What, 
What's the quick summary of uh, there, the, the Brady claims? The Brady claims, I think, deal with CPS records and records from a place called Maggie's House, which I guess is where juvenile uh, minors are taken for interviews when a crime occurs, when they witness a crime, when they're when they're a victim of a crime. And so Lucio's kids were taken to Maggie's house and interviewed by social workers at Maggie's house. And interviewing kids is, it, it is a, um, it is tricky. You have to be careful. You have to ask them, uh, you have to be very careful. You don't ask them yes or no questions. You don't lead them. You know, you try to ask them open-ended questions and hope to draw out information from them. Um, so they went to their, the state does not generate those records, does not have those records. They have to get those records from another department. And there was apparently a delay in producing the CPS records. Uh, the CPS records are also confidential. So there was probably a whole lot of wrangling among the state, the defense, and the judge with CPS. And I think CPS is a little overwhelmed, uh, especially in that area, given the proximity to the border. Absolutely. And so CPS delayed providing records to the state to then be turned over to the defense. So there's an argument that the defense would have made better use of those records and they would have found that the kids never accused Lucio of, of violence if they'd had the records and they, did, they must not have had the records. That's not true. They had the records. Her attorney said he was ready to go and he went to trial and he used the records. Problem is, there's some things that, it, that were in those records that came back and were used to good effect by the state in cross-examination. So that is one of the Brady violations, and, and it's been made before, and Lucio failed to prove it then. I don't think she's going to prove it now, although I do, I have seen them claim that an attorney who got her habeas attorney's records and he got them from Gilman that the records aren't in or, or pages from those records are not in the files they got. But to prove the Brady violation, they're going to have to have Gilman come in or uh, Cordova, her second chair, come in and say, yep, didn't have those records. And guess what? They're not going to do that. Because if they were going to do that, they would have done that already. Absolutely. You know, and then the Maggie's house, there was a question of whether or not the Maggie's house records were discoverable and whether they had any Brady material in them. The judge determined that they did not. And so they weren't produced as a result of the judge finding there was no Brady potentially exculpatory material. And then later on, they were produced. Because so, really, the only thing 
I'm just kind of riffing, but the only thing that would have been exculpatory, right, would have been if one of the children would have said they witnessed somebody else kill Mariah, well, right? I, I mean, think... even if the children said, oh, I did not see mom ever beat Mariah, that's not necessarily exculpatory. Right. And, you know, they're, they're the pro well, the problem with that, too, is that while some of the kids said I never saw bruises on Mariah and I think what they're talking about is the kids saying we didn't see bruises on Mariah well maybe they didn't want to see bruises on Mariah but that's indisputable you know, right I mean that we see we have evidence of bruises on we, Mariah, there's evidence right, of, right that's exactly not, that's not even an open question yeah um and let me look at this uh I'm, I'm going to look specifically because they did raise this this Brady violation um the CPS records were produced before trial and any delay was due to the failure of CPS to timely provide the records. Lucio failed to demonstrate harm as a result of late disclosure of CPS records. Uh, and then the same with Maggie's house. So those are the Brady violations they were alleging. I think that they are alleging a Brady violation because they've got subsequent attorneys who are saying some pages of the re records aren't in the council's files but even that doesn't necessarily mean that council didn't have them that just means that sometime between the time council had the file and you got the file something is misplaced or lost or whatever you know um like i said to prove a brady violation they're going to have to bring Gilman or the second chair attorney Cordova in to say, I'd never seen this report before. It wasn't in my files. I didn't have it. If I'd have it, if I'd had it, I would have used it. But even with a Brady violation, you have to, you have to prove the material, the materiality of the evidence. It would have to be somebody saying, I saw Alexandra. Yep, exactly. Push Somebody else to do it. Mariah down the stairs and laugh when she hit the ground at the bottom. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, again, in a lot of these cases, you could have. Oh yes, I never. It, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> it, I never saw Lee Harvey Oswald shoot a president before, so mm -hmm. he must be innocent of killing President Kennedy. Right. You know. And for, you know, like I said, for that, the, the kids statements, some of the material in the CPS records was helpful, but some of it was not. Whereas the kids said she loved Mariah. They also said she was afraid of her. And um, there was a there was a thing where Richard and Renee apparently gave uh, affidavits that said um, they saw Alexandra with her and knock her down the stairs. But then in the CPS records, they said um, they gave inconsistent statements about the fall itself. They said it was a fall at their part that their new apartment. Well, and part of it is I call it out because I feel like the Brady violation, quote unquote, is one of those headline grabbers that folks that listen to true crime podcasts 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. That means that the state found evidence of somebody else's blood on Mariah. There's a fingerprint, you know, oh, this is big, scary, exculpatory mm-hmm. evidence, right. which it doesn't necessarily mean that making and- a Brady claim means that there is very clear exculpatory evidence out there that the prosecution hid from the defense. Yeah. And, you know, Richard and Renee in their statements to CPS or in their Maggie's house interviews, they gave statements that would have been detrimental to Lucio, including that violence was a regular occurrence in the household and that Lucio was the aggressor. Uh, Um, Well, and even, I mean, I think we talked about it earlier. I mean, even one of even one or several of her kids, I forget which one of the 14, has, you know, even publicly been pretty vocal that her mom did yeah. really take out, you know, specifically yeah. targeted Mariah and, you know, beat her frequently. Yeah, that was Selena. That's right. Yep. Yeah, that's Selena. Um, and then, you know, they found counsel was not deficient for failing to place blame on Alexandra. The evidence submitted in support of the allegation was unsworn her- an unsworn hearsay affidavit reporting hearsay from three sources and did not rise to the level of credible evidence. That was what they talked about in the documentary. Um, and I'm making air quotes as I say that, um, that uh, the Villanueva, the kids told her Alexandra pushed Mariah down the stairs. But again, the Brady violation, it's not just that they withheld it. And you have to prove they withheld it. So CPS records, if that was because of delay in CPS producing the records, it's not the state. Exactly. Now, they're going to yep. argue the CPS is an agency of the state, but that doesn't work. You can simplify it to that if you want to, but that's playing to the court of public opinion. Exactly. Well, and I mean, it's not playing court. Right. And I hate to stereotype, but I mean, my gut would be if you interviewed 100 CPS workers, 99 of them are going to be more of your kind of bleeding hearts. She's probably didn't do it. You know, we really, you know, have a lot of sympathy. They're not exactly hardcore law and order prosecutors, Mm -hmm. generally speaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, so, and it, but again, the other thing is the it's not just that evidence was withheld. That evidence has to be material, and it has they have to prove that it would have changed the outcome of the trial. And on the allegations they presented before, in prior actions, those have not been ones that would have changed the outcome of the trial, because there is contradictory information sometimes within the records that they're citing is supportive. And I would, I would imagine in the CPS records, there's, you know, information that's, that is detrimental to Lucio contained within the same records. So, um, but again, the, the Innocence Project tends to put blinders on. And then they only look at what they want to look at and they ignore anything that doesn't fit. Exactly. And I find that more and more with their work. I mean, they're involved in Melissa Lucio. There's no DNA. There's no physical evidence. 
There never was, there never will be. So there's nothing that can conclusively, definitively prove her guilt or innocence. Right. Well, you know, we've talked about this before. I mean, the Innocence Project uses these poor people and they, sure, they do some good. Absolutely. Nobody would argue that any, no one wants to see an innocent person convicted, but the, the Innocence Project abuses and takes advantage of these defendants because how they can package them and sell them to the Twitterverse and get somebody mm-hmm. like a Kim Kardashian yeah. to help raise money for the Innocence Project. And she fits the profile. She's a woman. She's a person of color. She's from No, Evil, she Texas. is not. She actually is not. She is Armenian. She is European. Okay, my mind is blown. Eastern European. Okay, you have blown my mind. <laughs> I didn't think, I mean, I knew you could blow my mind, but okay, you have absolutely blown my mind. That's fantastic. She is well, Armenian. She, okay, yeah, yeah, because Turkey Turkey is Europe. Okay, I to be honest, I... Greece is Europe. I didn't, I just, okay, I apologize. Please do not cancel me. I assumed she was Hispanic. Nope. Now, I don't know about Chris, but Kardashian's Armenian. Oh, no, Kardashian now, is. Oh, no, I'm sorry. They, I, I meant about Lucio. Sorry. Oh, sorry. No. Oh, okay. no, I, I was saying. saying Kim no, Kardashian. No, 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 Kardashian. Oh, yeah, I knew she was Armenian. No, I just mean, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was like, I was like, I'm about to be canceled. You're going to have to fire no, me because you're yeah, right. Just, no, 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 yeah. no. And, and that was my mistake. I thought you were talking about Kardashian. No, no. Yeah. But I just, Same. you know, she's a woman. She's a person of color. Yeah, you know, she, she can get is. the Twitter mob outraged and over her execution. Cause I you think- know, we went through this, you know, I remember, I don't remember. Was it 2000? Oh gosh. When was it late? late 90s you know here in texas we went through this with carla faye tucker who was the maybe the there had not been a woman executed by texas in a really long time Mm -hmm. and that was a big you know even though she you know axed some poor innocent guy to death as part of a drug deal you know that was a big you know thing so yeah she fits all the profile to get the twitterverse you know up in arms and raise money for the innocence project even though as you said there's really nothing in the classic Innocence Project playbook around, you know, around DNA or actual exculpatory evidence. It's just kind of that emotional appeal appeal of, you know, evil Texas is going to execute a female woman of color. Yeah. And that's and and my apologies to you. Like I said, I, I misunderstood. I thought <laughs> no you were worries. referring it's to Kim fun. Kardashian. And I'm like, She's not a person of color. She's freaking European. She's Armenian. <laughs> they're not people of color. <laughs> uh, they're they're from you know they're maybe kind of Eastern European. Um, I know Greece is part of Europe. Turkey, Turkey's part of Europe, but it's kind of classed with the Middle East because it's um, predominantly Muslim, but. 
and and Armenians were persecuted, yeah, and there well, was Armenian genocide. So we're not saying, you know, her people haven't suffered. Well, yeah, just like just like we went off last last episode about your amazing encyclopedic knowledge of racehorses. Uh, I won't bore the audience with my uh, fascination with uh, with that part of the world, all the way from. Uh, from uh, the Byzantine Empire to World War One, <laughs> so uh-huh. I could go off on a tangent in that part of the world. It's so fascinating. Yeah, it is. Um, so anyway, uh, so the trial court denied uh, habeas relief, uh, and I'm going to go through. Let me just go through the conclusions, um, and we'll talk about the facts in more detail some other time. Uh, the first conclusion of law was that Lucio's statement was not coerced. The second was that the contract therapist with CPS was not acting in concert with police when he counseled Lucio, that Lucio failed to show counsel was deficient in any manner, that where she alleged deficiency, she failed to show the outcome of her trial would have been different, that she failed to show counsel's actions were not sound trial strategy. Because sometimes, you know, sometimes it's stinking on your feet. Um, Not utilizing the CPS records could have been because there was harmful information in it. So you have to be very careful because if you start asking about how the kids don't say Lucio abused them, then you've got the state coming cross-examining and saying, well, what about here? Or what about this where they found that she abused Gabriel? So those kind of things are sound trial strategy, not accusing Alexandra not trying to accuse Robert Alvarez. Those are sound trial strategies. The court did not abuse its discretion in excluding Villanueva and Pinkerman, that the state did not violate Brady with disclosures, with its disclosures of the CPS records and Maggie's house interviews, that they, Lucio failed to show voluntary or involuntary facial expressions by the court, constituted a statement on the evidence. Apparently, after Dr. Curry, her medical expert, left the stand her attorney Gilman said uh your honor you've been making facial expressions I'd appreciate if you didn't do that of course the court had no idea what Gilman was talking about because there was no context and Gilman didn't say well when he said ABC you did this uh and I think Gilman was just playing to the jury making him think the judge did something that he shouldn't have been doing. Uh, the court also found that the record was complete because Lucio raised a complaint about the failure of a written, tra- not having a written transcript of her police interviews. That um, the affidavits of her sister and her mother failed to support innocence by clear and convincing standard. I think they were actually saying that they knew Alexandra had killed Mariah. Um, the that Lucio's claim that she was never alone with Mariah was contradicted by the record and did not support innocence by a clear and convincing standard, and that she was not entitled to habeas relief. So, um, and all of those things that have already been decided, it's very unlikely that she's going to present anything that's going to change that outcome so uh the court of criminal appeals uh 
denied relief without written opinion. Uh, now, leading up to her execution, and this is where we're going to have to, um, we are going to have to come back to this because a lot of paper was, a lot of trees were killed in um, my research of all the things that went on leading up to this day of execution. They, uh, Lucio filed a suggestion to reconsider her initial habeas claims on the court's own motion and a stay of execution. Uh, two amicus briefs were filed in support of that, or one amicus brief was filed by whom I don't know. Uh, and I'm waiting for the uh, attorney general's office sorry my brain was went blank to um to see if i can get copies of those that's okay it's not your fault kim kardashian <laughs> will make many people's <laughs> brains go blank and the state filed its response there were multiple motions to appear pro hoc vice which were all denied and then um the suggestion to reconsider and motion for stay of execution were also denied that was yesterday um, and that was, like I said, that was her first full state post-conviction claim. Um, now, she also did pursue federal habeas and pretty much pursued the same issues. I think there were 25 issues, but the court found most of them lacked merit and some of them were procedurally defaulted because they weren't raised or presented in state court or Issues raised and presented in state court were kind of repackaged and re-argued in a different way in the federal claim. And so the district court granted the director's motion for summary judgment and denied and dismissed her habeas claim without prejudice, with prejudice rather. Um, Lucio appealed to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal Initially, the panel granted relief on a claim of uh, basically she claimed that she was deprived of a complete defense when the court refused to let her experts testify about her confession and during the guilt innocence phase of the trial. Again, it's this is something that is generally not allowed you can't have an expert come in and say the confession is false acquit you must acquit um it's just not done i mean we remember all the controversy about dr offshay and how his testimony was limited that was because he can't come in and say well this is a false confession it's not true and you can't convict him because it's up to the jury to decide whether the confession is true or not. And they don't right. need Offshay to tell them whether it is false or true. Um, that was appealed and the, uh, the state, of course, appealed. And the rehearing, a rehearing on Bonk was granted with the full court. I think it's a full court. I'm not sure. Uh, it's an awful lot of judges. That was decided on the 9th of February, 2021. And the 
majority or plurality, because I think it was like the same number for and against. So, but that majority, that became the opinion that mattered. Uh, the dissents don't matter. Um, they never do. And that was decided uh, that the relitigation bar applied and the claim had been adjudicated in state court that the Texas court did not unreasonably apply Crane versus Kentucky in direct appeal in finding that the experts shouldn't be allowed to testify, that the witnesses' opinions about the confession were inadmissible under state law and state court did not affirm a blanket exclusion of evidence regarding Lucio's confession. Uh, and they found, one of the things that the court found in examining the record was that in reality, Dr. While the while Pinkerman's proposed testimony was was described as being that because she's a battered woman, she's going to agree with whatever police say. In reality, Pinkerman, Pinkerman's report and his proffered testimony never mentioned a battered woman syndrome or that Lucio would take the blame for anything. And then it's a very long opinion. Uh, it's very critical of the dissenting opinions. Even going to probably what would be hyperbole and rhetoric and perhaps even, what was that? Well, my friend of mine used to use the term and I can't remember where you just attack somebody for the sake of attacking them. Um, and there was a concurring opinion by Judge Southwick. Basically, he just said he couldn't accept the legal reasoning by the dissenters. Uh, and he found that for Lucio to succeed on her claim, Crane had to do more and the uh, that his opinion was based on the interplay of his interpretation of the limitations of EDPA and Crane. And again, you know, we have to consider that under the law as it stands, federal courts can't sit in judgment of state courts and just overrule them to overrule them. Right. They're not free to make their own determinations. They're, they're bound by exactly. the determinations made by state court. So, and then there were dissents by Higginbotham. Higginbotham really actually angered me a little bit because he had the audacity to refer to her as Melissa and to refer to Mariah as the victim. And I think it should have been the other way around. It should have been Lucio instead of Mel Melissa. And instead of the victim, it should have been Mariah. Exactly. exactly. And he was critical of CPS and the death penalty for the most part. Um, Elrod found that didn't, didn't agree. He didn't agree that the complete defense claim had been exhausted in state court. Or he believed that defense claim had been exhausted in state court and that the state court's determination of it was unreasonable and then um the dissents basically the main dissent was that the evidence refuting the core of the state's case which was a confession not true 
was deemed irrelevant by the state court in an unreasonable application of Supreme Court precedent uh, and was critical of the majority opinion. But again, they weren't allowed to testify because you can't say, you can't put an expert on the stand to say a confession is true or not true. That's a determination for the jury. They don't need an expert to tell them that. Um, they, she filed an appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court, or petition for writ of certiorari, and that was on July 9, 2021. There were amicus briefs by the Innocence Project and Innocence Network and former prosecutors, anti-violence organizations, and experts in the field of gender-based violence, um, which, again, this was a Hispanic woman, a Hispanic victim. This was a female female perpetrator, a female victim. This was not, you know, a, a case of a husband killing a wife after a history of domestic violence. This was a mother killing a child. Exactly. I, I mean, because she yeah, claims I, to be a battered woman, that doesn't excuse. Yeah, that's, well, and that's where I think it's, you know, that's, I'm glad that that's a really good way to think about it because I think I've been struggling with, you know, you know, the whole idea of, you know, you're a battered woman that might give you an excuse to set your husband's bed on fire while he is asleep, while he's asleep, but that right. doesn't give right. you the excuse to kill your child. You know, uh, and being abused isn't a, should yeah. not be carte blanche for committing any crime. I mean, often kids who are abused become bullies in school. And they pick on the younger, smaller, weaker children. Sometimes mothers who are being abused by their partner, they only way they can get take back that power and control is by abusing their kids. Right. And again, the impression that I get of Lucio is all of her kids were a means to an end. They were a check. And she kept having them when others were moved out of the house. So she would always have that source of income. And then she didn't use it to take care of the kids. She used it to buy drugs because that was more important. I mean, she's a selfish self-centered, narcissistic person. You're only good for what you can do for her. Yeah, no, you're right. So, uh, and I didn't see a lot of former prosecutors. When I looked through the, you know, certificate of interested person, I saw a lot of, um, you know, battered women's organizations and, and, things like that i did not see former prosecutors i saw social workers you know I, I i don't know and that doesn't make their just because they're former prosecutors doesn't make their opinion um on the issue any more relevant than anyone else's uh the state of texas responded on september 13 2021 and a reply was filed on September 28th, 2021. The case was distributed for conference on the 30th of September 
and the petition was denied on October 18th, 2021, which set the stage for the Cameron County seeking an execution date. Uh, initially, one was granted. I don't have the date that that happened. There was apparently a flaw or a, a problem with the order. And so it was vacated and a new order, an amended order was granted on July 18th, 2022. Then in response to that, uh, Lucio filed a writ of mandamus seeking to disqualify the DA and the judge because Peter Gilman had taken a position with the district attorney's office in 2009. Well, guess what? The time to have raised that issue was, can you say it, Kyle? 2009 when Gilman took the job. Exactly. <laughs> um, and the brief argues that you know, he's not cooperating with her current attorneys because he works for the DA. It's like he's been working for the DA since her state and federal habeas were going on. So why is it a problem suddenly now? And then his wife, who had been his former paralegal, is working for the judge in Cameron County, who's not Judge Nelson. It's a different judge. Uh, I think Garcia, but I'm not, don't quote me. Um, and so for some reason, because his former paralegal now works for the judge, somehow the Innocence Project is prevented from contacting the judge's office or having the judge decide anything. So they were also seeking removal of the DA and the judge and withdrawal of the execution date by Cameron County. Um, the, the court requested a response. The DA filed a response, but the judge has not filed a response. Um, the court has conditionally granted mandamus relief. They're giving the judge three days from yesterday to, uh, act on Lucio's motion to recuse. Um, and they also denied the stay, the motion to stay execution. Then there was another petition and a motion for stay of execution filed. I don't know what those were, however, because for some reason, uh, the attorney general is not involved. So I'm probably going to have to go to the court of criminal appeals to get those briefs. To get that for Yeah. Um, Although I might send a uh, freedom of information to Cameron County and see what I get. Um, but that was the motion for leave was denied without written order. So whatever they were asking in, in this other post-conviction claim, uh, it was denied without written order. But I'm going to have to go to the Court of Criminal Appeals or Cameron County to find out what the heck that was. And um, then finally, she's filed a new writ, state post-conviction writ. She also filed a federal, uh, tried to file a successive federal habeas writ. 
at the same time. Because the Innocence Project, in addition to the fact that they can't win in court, so they're going to play to the court of, court of public opinion, they also hedge their bets. So they go mm. to state court and they go to federal court. And they see which one is they just gonna, keep right. Yeah. Um, which one is gonna fall for it? So basically, they raised a lot of issues, and I- I'm gonna read them because some of them are pretty ridiculous. Uh, the first one, of course, is false testimony that Farley and Escalon were lying, that they've met the Chapeau Chavez requirements of proving false testimony. And that they're entitled to merits review because they've made a prima facie showing of innocence. Because if they were lying, Melissa Lucio has to be innocent. Um, they claim in ground two that there's new scientific evidence that the bite marks weren't bite marks. Um, and interestingly enough, again, the the bite mark observed on, on um, Mariah's shoulder was confirmed by an odontologist and probably one of the reasons that was allowed in through Farley's testimony was because the odontologist couldn't match it to Melissa. to Lucio. Um, but I digress. Then there is new evidence of confirmation bias. That is one of the ridiculous ones. Because uh, if you say the police had confirmation bias, I say Innocence Project, you have confirmation bias. You want her to be innocent. And so you're going to determine, you're going to find only what proves her innocent. Right. And you're going to ignore anything that proves her guilty. You can look at pictures of that child's body all day long. And you're going to say, nope, clotting disorder, not bruises. Or not from abuse, but from a clotting disorder. Uh, you know, blunt trauma to the head, that was from a fall. Steep staircase, no corroboration, but I'll believe what they say. That's confirmation bias. Uh, new scientific evidence on false confession. I don't know how you can get scientific evidence on a false confession. I'll be interested to see what the hell that's all about. And new scientific evidence regarding demeanor reading. Apparently, Escalon testified about his observations and his experience as to what that body language often arose from in a person's um, interactions with police. And now they're saying, well, that was total hokum and and we have scientific proof that it was hokum. That's kind of ridiculous. Um, the bite mark shit, you know, again, your odontologist, that's one of the reasons bite marks have pretty much been shoved to the wayside as evidence. They were once considered pretty reliable, but now they're right. not because... Three odontologists can look at the exact same thing and all three come to a different conclusion or opinion. So uh, ground three is new evidence that no murder occurred. This is probably uh, kids 
now saying, well, I definitely saw Alexandra push her down the stairs. Uh, and, you know, the but just to be thing, clear, though, nobody's actually said that, right? Like nobody's ever positive. Well, I, I believe an alternative I crime. One of the, I believe I saw one of the an affidavit from one of the children. When I was looking at evident uh, at, at appendices filed in the Fifth Circuit and I it was late and I was tired, but I believe one of the children has now said I saw Alexandra push her down the stairs. I could be mistaken. I'm not. I could have just seen it, but it wasn't really there because I was just tired and I was aggravated of going through 500 something pages when I really wanted to go to bed, <laughs> but I couldn't stop. So, but yeah, I think they've gotten a couple of the kids to come forward and say they've, they saw something other than what really happened. Because again, the kids and whatever kids testify to this, if they said they saw her fall in the new apartment down three stairs, they're going to get, they're going to have a problem on the stand. And, you know, things are not going to go well. I don't think for Lucio's witnesses, it's going to be like the, the hearing with Rodney Reed's witnesses. They're going to have a lot of explaining to do. Um, so then they're, they're, they raised ineffective assistance of counsel, suppression of evidence by the state, uh, Sixth Amendment violations in pretrial interrogation, juror misconduct, gender bias, and actual innocence of the death penalty, false testimony regarding her future dangerousness. The uh, motion to stay was granted, and part of the reason for that is that she didn't file this writ until April 19th when she was a little bit more than a week away from execution. And the, there's no way the TCCA could have made of a good, you know, a, well, it would have been irresponsible for them to just deny it because the number of claims raised and the volume of material they provided in support of the claims. Mm -hmm. um, they've also they've they've also rendered this or remanded this case with amici from people in support of Lucio and no response from the state. So the state's response will be very interesting. And so the motion to stay execution was granted and four of the claims were remanded. Claim one on false testimony, claim two, the scientific evidence, claim three, actual innocence, and claim five, the Brady violation. And the TCA, TCCA found uh, claim three, no wait, claim four, claim six, claim seven, claim eight, and claim nine all to be complete and utter bullshit. In my humble opinion. Because they didn't remand them. And then again, they she filed a um, 
she tried to have the mandate recalled in her former Fifth Circuit appeal. And she filed a request to file a successive writ of habeas corpus in a new matter. Um, and an opposition was filed and she replied. And there was no decision last night as of about 9.30 or 10 o'clock on that. So that's, that's Lucio for tonight. So as usual, a lot of this where a lot of strong evidence that the convicted did it, but the Innocence Project and celebrities have stepped in to throw a bunch of stuff against the wall. To see what sticks. And to play to the court of public opinion. That's exactly. that's really, you know, all anybody is ever going to hear, it's just like with Rodney Reed, all they're going to hear is Brady violation. And they're not going to look beyond the fact that, A, it wasn't a Brady violation because this Rodney Reed had access to it. You know, like the beer cans. They right. still claim that was a Brady violation. And he had access to the same evidence. He tested the same evidence. He got the same result. His expert went one step further, and that eliminated those beer cans as being relevant evidence in his case altogether. And you can argue about whether it really is eliminated or not. But, you know, at the time of trial, his expert could not be questioned about those beer cans because if she was and she tried to portray him as exculpatory, her credibility would have been completely, totally, utterly destroyed by the state because they would have had her further testing that had eliminated the beer cans. And I think that's another thing that people don't realize. While there's generally not a uh, there's generally not a right of discovery owed to the state by a defendant, if an expert is going to testify, you have to provide that expert's reports about everything that expert's going to testify to. So if the expert was going to testify about the beer cans, they would have had their reports about the beer cans, all of them. Now, granted, yes, uh, Lydia Clay Jackson has said, well, maybe we would have not put on our expert and pretended that the beer cans were exculpatory. But that would be unethical for them to do that if they knew the beer cans were not exculpatory. So... But they look at it at like it's in a vacuum. They're still claiming Martha Barnett and Mary Blackwell's statements are credible. So, All right. No, so, that's. No, go ahead. Sorry. Well, no, no, no. It's exactly right. I mean, I think I just. I mean, I try to think about this as you know, how does somebody who has read about the case in the popular press sort of digest this. And I think that's a lot of it is the popular press kind of cherry picks things that sound really scary without ever sort of taking that second and third order, you know, analysis to really understand mm -hmm. what that means. And it's, it's getting scary because just like, you know, the, the, this, the writ granted for Rodney Reed, there are, purportedly intelligent 
quote, journalists who claim to cover the courts and know the courts who are saying the Supreme Court is going to decide if he gets DNA testing. And that is not what the Supreme Court could not say, Texas, you have to DNA test. Because Texas doesn't have to do what the Supreme Court tells them to. No, exactly. You know, they they don't have they don't have the authority to tell Texas you have to grant him DNA testing. All they're going to be looking at is whether or not you file as soon as the state denies, or you file after you've appealed and gone through the court process within the state. So at most. A decision in Rodney Reed's favor and Supreme Court is only going to revive his federal challenge to denial of DNA. And once the statute of limitations issue, even if that is decided in his favor and he goes back, there is really it's doubtful whether or not the federal court can do anything. Because the federal court doesn't have the power to tell a state court that it has to grant DNA testing. It can maybe say his rights are being denied. But I don't think it's going to end. And really, the reason he's being denied DNA testing in state court is because he doesn't qualify under the statute. Because his conviction is based on DNA. So we'll have to see we'll have to see where that goes. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Two really interesting cases that have gotten the celebrities worked up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. All right. Well, I think I think we've covered it and we will revisit Lucio um, once there's findings of fact in her state post-conviction claim. We'll talk about it. And it'll be interesting to go into more depth with her first state post-conviction and compare the claims presented uh, and how they were presented and then contrast with how the Innocence Project, because they they mostly repackage. And another thing that they do is they bring in all these experts that say uh, the the trial experts didn't know what they were talking about. They were lying and I know what I'm doing and, you know, I'm beyond reproach and what I say goes. And so because nothing says credibility, like an expert paid for by the innocence project. (laughs) Well, I, they've somehow managed to get it so that most of their experts are pro bono. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm sure they're pro bono for that trial, but then they get very lucrative speaking engagements. And um, and I think that's where, yeah, I think that's where they're doing. And and it'd be interesting to see if a if a DA. Well, what kind of compensation do you get? Because, I mean, they said Baden flew down on his own dime. And they were saying at the uh, at the last hearing that Baker and. Wait, Baker flew down on his own dime the other one couldn't leave kentucky davis i think 
Well, and that's the thing on a lot of these deals where people don't understand that, you know, mon- money is fungible, right? It's like, okay, Baker's going to fly down on his own dime. Yes, that is true. He is testifying for free. That is absolutely right. The but does he week, submit his yeah, expenses well, the next week, later? It, it, yeah, well, the next week, the Innocence Project is paying him $100,000 to do a brown bag for the local office talking about, you know, DNA testing. I mean, yeah, technically, he may not be getting paid for by, you know, for this particular trial, but I'm sure he is getting paid, you know, if not out of the right pocket, out of the left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. All right, well, let's uh, let's call it a night it's very late thank you so much for being patient with me tonight <laughs> well thank <laughs> you for doing all this work dinner. it's a it's a tough it's a tough case to have to listen to i mean a child being murdered by her mother is just horrible and especially as remind everybody poor mariah still does not have a headstone at the harlingen cemetery yes and um and i want to say if you live in the Harlingen area, uh, you know, my, my faithful listeners, uh, and you know anybody, there is a stone company, a memorial company uh, there, and I have looked at headstones and the little flat markers. Um, private message me on Facebook or, or Twitter. If we can get something together with a group of people to anonymously buy something and if you know somebody in the harlingen area that could kind of facilitate getting that ordered and paid for and installed um so that this child does not continue resting in an unmarked grave um that would be really great because apparently her alvarez siblings her lucio siblings her grandmother uh her grandparents on either side her father, none of these people has seen fit to try to even provide her with a headstone. I understand the family was poor and I understand financially strapped most of the time, but you manage when you want to do it. And among 13 siblings or 11 siblings, I'm sure that they could have put together $500 or $600 to buy something to mark their sister's grave. And definitely something the Innocence Project could probably find out of its uh, petty cash. Yeah, I, I would like to send something like that. And I'll bet you that they are totally, totally unaware that Mariah is in an unmarked grave. Um, and I bet that the people, Lucio's advocates who hear that are going to call me a liar, but well, okay. Maybe find a grave isn't a trustworthy source, but according to find a grave, Mariah's grave is unmarked. Uh, and I challenge anybody who wants to say I'm lying, fine, go to Harlingen, go to the cemetery and take a picture of Mariah's headstone. And I'll eat my words. So, all right. Well, that is, I think on that note, (laughs) 
before I fight with somebody because <laughs> <laughs> that makes me mad. Um, you know, I, I don't mind being proven wrong, but prove me wrong. Don't just tell me I'm wrong. Exactly. Uh, so if you want to tell me I'm wrong, please post a picture of the headstone. Thank you for listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. If you like the show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us next week for episode 10, where Kyle and I will talk to Joe Nevels and Natalie Voss Nevels about the 148th Kentucky Derby. The annual run for the Roses will be held at Churchill Downs on May 7th, 2022. The appearance of Joe and Natalie on our show will make this the only true crime podcast that can claim two Eclipse Award-winning writers as guests. I'm also curious to see the dynamic between Joe and Natalie in an interview. In advance of the show, you can find Joe and Natalie's articles and features at the Pollock Report or on their website. Links will be posted in the show description. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.